0: good morning good morning welcome bobby hello so i guess we're calling it an intermission i'm a huge word i'm a huge word nerd huge word nerd uh I, I, I'm always like, how, why is this word that way? And English spelling is horrible. I'm helping my little kids with spelling lessons. It's like, why in the world? English is, this is stupid. Like, why do we spell this word that way? So I always look it up. It's like, well, where did this word come from or whatever? So intermission. I'm not sure what that means, but I like the mission part of it. You have a mission. You have a mission during the intermission to connect at a deeper level and fellowship, make a fridge friend with someone here at Crossroads. So if that's what we mean by intermission, I guess I'm fine with that. But I thought I would just use some of my wordiness to, to fill that in and, and give you a better idea of what we're driving at. It's not just a time to use the restroom, although you can do that if you would like, or get some food, you can do that. But our hope is that it would be a time of fellowship to connect. Uh, we say often, if, if you come here and just attend a service, but don't actually get to know anyone, you're missing out on 90% of what it means to be the church. What it means to be the church is, it means to be in relationship with God, in relationship with our fellow man, in deep and vibrant community. So don't miss the opportunity. We also have an opportunity after service to gather around food, which when food is present, it's hard not to have fellowship. So if you're new and you want to make some friends, come eat some food with us and we'll, uh, we'll celebrate the goodness of God this morning. All right, let's uh, move into the, the message today. Um, am I, Is my mic just a touch hot? It seems a little hot maybe. Bring me down just a little bit. Thanks. Yeah, I don't like to hear myself, all right? I don't like my voice. Sorry, you have to listen to me. You know who I miss listening to, though, for real. Paul Harvey. Oh, yeah, we got some Paul Harveys. Seth has no idea who Paul Harvey is. (laughs) Seriously, we were talking, he's like, Paul Harvey, who's that? I'm like, oh my goodness, you are such a baby. You're so little, right? So I grew up when Paul Harvey was still a thing. I mean, I'm on the tail end of it, but I remember when, when my mom and dad were remodeling my childhood home. There was a guy, a carpenter, his name was Vernon something, old fella, he was like in his 80s still, I'm not even sure, I'm like mom and dad, you hired an 80 year old to read them out of your house, like what are you doing, that's elder abuse, but um, <laughs> no, he was awesome, Vernon, great guy, at his lunch break, he used to go eat his ham and cheese sandwich and Logan and I, my twin brother, we would kind of sneak around and he'd put Paul Harvey on and he'd listen and we kind of over Oh, eavesdrop and listen to Paul Harvey over that. So Paul Harvey, is a, he's a radio broadcaster. If you're too young for Paul Harvey, you might have heard of Mike Rowe. So Mike Rowe is the Dirty Jobs guy. He's got a podcast called That's the Way I Heard It. Uh, it's, it's a spinoff of what Paul Harvey used to do, right? What did Paul Harvey used to say at the end of his broadcast? Anyway, that's the way I heard it. Just kidding. I, d- I did the Mike Rowe thing. That's not the way I heard it, right? He, Paul Harvey did, and that's the rest of the story. And that's the rest of the story. Mike Rowe says, anyway, that's the way I heard it. So I've listened to both of those. But as I was thinking about where we're going this morning and the rest of the story, got Paul Harvey in my brain, I was thinking about the morals of the story, all you Ohio State fans, the Ohio State. We're not talking about a story this morning. We're talking about the story. And we're going to look at the Mosaic Covenant, which you can think of in terms of Paul Harvey, the morals of the story, the rest of the story in regards to the promises of God. And that's what I've entitled today's message, the morals of the story, the morals of the story. You can see that as we've been moving along through our covenant series, focusing on the promises of God that He's outlined for us in Scripture, we kind of started with this wide focus. You can think of it at the top of of the funnel. So we've got the Noahic covenant. That's the covenant between God and all of humanity, right? And then as we've progressed through the covenants, last week we looked through Abraham. God's kind of narrowed His 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 focus on who he's making promises to. So he's uh, he's gotten more specific not just with people but also with like the stipulations. So we've learned we've learned who he's making promises to and we've also learned some things about God along the way and what his standards are, what he desires of us as well. In the Noahic covenant, we learned that God cares deeply about the way that you and I live. So much so that he got so upset with all of humanity and how rotten we were being that he judged the world through a worldwide flood. After which, he makes a promise to Noah and to all of us that he will never again judge all of humanity. And I love the symbolism of the rainbow. If you remember, you think of the rainbow as kind of God's war bow that he's hung up in the sky. It's no longer pointing down at humanity. It's pointing back up at himself, which is just a beautiful picture of the gospel. The next time you see a rainbow, remember God's war bow, his wrath, he's hung it up in the sky and he points it back at himself. For those who have faith in Jesus, we can escape worldwide judgment, right? So that was the, the Noahic covenant. And then we also learned when we were talking about Noah, as Wes was unpacking that for us, we learned a little bit about the manner in which you and I can experience salvation, in he, in, uh, not Hebrews, in Genesis 6-9, we're told that Noah was blameless and that he was righteous. And then immediately after that, you would expect a list of a bunch of good behaviors and works. But that's not what it says. It says Noah was blameless and righteous. Why? Because he walked with God. He walked with God, and that credited him righteousness. So very early on in the story of Genesis, we learn that salvation, righteousness, comes to us not through a bunch of good works, behaviors that we can string together. Not that God's not concerned about it, he is. It just can't save us. No, what saves us is relationship. Having deep and meaningful fellowship with the creator God of the universe. That was two weeks ago. This week, or this past week, we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, and we learned once again that grace is the main driving factor of salvation. Right there in the beginning, before Abraham does that, we don't even know who he is. It tells us, and God called Abram. So God initiates. He graciously moves towards his people, and then Abraham's part, we're told that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So we can see in that pattern. It's through faith and relationship, that salvation and God's promises come to us. We learn as we went through the Abrahamic covenant and the story of Abraham that Abraham wasn't that stellar of a gentleman always. So he couldn't have been saved by his good works. He had to be saved through relationships because there was a lot of things that he did, giving his wife away and doing a bunch of shadiness with his, his, one of his servant girls in his house. It was crazy. He was just not that great of a guy. But God chose him and he promised to bless him Do you remember what the blessing was, what the promise was? He promised to give him a people, a place, and an eternal possession. And for the most part, Abraham grew in faith and belief of that promise. He had a few lapses here and there, but by and large, he grows into an incredible man of faith, so much so that we give him the nickname, the Father of Faith. And if you remember in Genesis 15... God basically, he reaffirms the the covenant promise, and he basically tells Abram, he puts Abram to sleep during this weird covenant ceremony, remember the the hall of sacrifice with the dead animals on either side, we've got some married couples in here that said, we're actually thinking about practicing that in our vows, right, it's like, more power to you, that's symbolism, That'll, that'll preach, right, that's good stuff. But if you weren't here, they had this hall of sacrifice, dead animals on either side, and the two parties, the two parties making the covenant, they'd they'd go together and they'd walk through that hall of sacrifice saying, essentially to one another, may we become like these dead carcasses if either one of us fails to uphold our end of the deal. The crazy part of Genesis 15 is God puts Abram to sleep, and then through a flaming fire pot and a torch, which symbolizes the presence and spirit of God, he alone walks through the hall of sacrifice, essentially telling Abraham, hey dude, here's my promise, and I'm gonna do all of the heavy lifting. And if you were with us last week, kind of left us with the question, Is like, well, if we're saved by grace, right, if God's gonna do all the heavy lifting, does it even matter how we live? Yes, it does. Genesis 17 comes along, and God gives Abraham this stipulation of the covenant. He essentially says, I want you to wear my sign. And he talks about circumcision, which is not the sign of the covenant for the Christian. Baptism is now the sign of the covenant. And the faith that's represented by baptism is the sign of the covenant. But essentially, God is saying like, hey, I want you to live in light of my promise. I want you to wear my mark and wear my mark in such a way, my brand, right, the brand, like a cattle brand. I want you to live in such a way, live in light of my promise in such a way to be so marked by me that the whole world sees me through you. Live in light of the promise. And if you were with, live with us last week, you might, you might still be thinking like, okay, learn to live in light of the promise. That's like a catchy, right? That's something a preacher would say, but what the hairy does that mean? What does it mean? Like, what does it mean to, to be marked by God and to carry his brand and, and to live in light of his gospel promises in the light of Jesus? What does that mean? You didn't get very specific. Enter. The Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 20. The morals, the specifics of the story. Today we see God get even more specific about what it looks like to live saved by grace and live in light of his promises. So we've gone from all of humanity to Noah, and then God's kind of narrowed the focus a little bit more into Abraham. And today he speaks in detail to the descendants of Abraham through Moses, in an attempt to take kind of this ragtag family of tribes and make them, fashion them into a nation, a cohesive nation, the nation of Israel, who is supposed to become a blessing to the entire world. Remember Abram's promise? God's promise to Abram? I'm going to bless you so that you and your descendants become a blessing to the entire world. That's the purpose behind the morals of this story. We're meant to be a blessing. God's commandments, shaping our lives in such a way. It's not meant to just steal our joy or be a list of rules that we follow to get saved. No, it's meant to mark us in such a way that we bless the entire world. I want to quote out of Exodus 19 and give you a little context before we get into Exodus 20. Exodus 19, verses 4 or 5, 5 and 6. God tells us the reason he's about to give this people the Ten Commandments, the list of rules or the morals of the story that they should live by. He says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are my words you are to speak to the Israelites. So God's cluing us into his tent, his intent and his purpose behind salvation here. God is graciously saving people, but he's bringing people to himself in order that he might get glory. That he might get glory. That's what this business about becoming a nation of priests and a holy nation is all about. Now the word holy, it's a word we've probably already heard. But if I were to ask you to give me a definition for it, my guess is that it would take us a minute. It's not an easy word to define. And that's why it's helpful that the word holy has is, is got the word priest in that sentence with it. We, we may not think of ourselves as priests, and some of the ideas that we have about priests may not be all correct. But when you think about a priest, at least we have, we have an idea, right? And we think about what, what is a priest at its simplest term? What do they do? I think what Wes introed us in this morning is the, the main job of a priest, they're to be the CWO, the Chief Worshiping Officer. They're meant to make God known and help others know God personally. That's the role of a priest, a pastor. Shepherds God's flock, be the chief, not executive, chief worshiping officer. Help God's people worship the Lord. That's what a priest is. And then holy. Holy kind of is a word that means to be set apart. It it, a lot of times has like a moral or, or purity standard that goes along with it. And it's not just to be set apart for any old reason. It's to be set apart in purity so that we can serve and show who our God is. We can serve God and show other people what our God is like. That is the reason why God gives us these morals, the commandments. It's not just because, right? God saves us graciously to display his glory and goodness by loving him and learning to love our neighbors. That's the reason behind this. It's meant to display his glory. The morals, these rules and commandments, they're not meant to steal our joy as many people think, right? When you think about the commandments of God, it's like, oh God, he's such a killjoy. He's just trying to sap all our joy and fun. That's not true, right? They're also not a list of tasks that he gives to us. He's like, well, here's my standard. You better measure up to it or I'm gonna excommunicate you from the family. That's not right either. No, these, these morals are to paint for us a target that help us learn to live in line, of, in line with who God is, but it's to display his glory, It's to help others learn to understand who he is. In a minute, we're going to read Exodus 20. But before we do, I want to give you a roadmap. If you're not following, I want you to to take notes here. I want you to be on the lookout for five things as we work through the Ten Commandments this morning. I want you to be on the lookout for these five things. The first thing I want you to see is that the Mosaic Covenant, the morals of the story, are rooted in grace. You're going to see that in verses 1 and 2. And we're going to move on to verses 3 through 11. And I want you to see that the most important moral, the most important rule or commandment that God gives to us is to love God. Learn to love God. Worship God alone. Number three, we see this awesome segue in between our vertical relationship with the Father and our horizontal relationships. It's like the, the linchpin. It's where everything turns. And it has to do with your relationship with your parents. You practice loving God by learning to love and live under the authority of your parents. And then we'll look at verses 13 and 17 through 17. If you love God and learn to honor your parents, you will love your neighbor as yourself by not doing a list of certain things. And then finally, we'll wrap things up with uh, moral number five, I guess if we want to call it that. We'll see that God's standards and... The God who stands behind them will cause fear in our hearts because we'll realize we can't live up to them. We'll also realize that we need a mediator, a lawyer, a defender, someone to go to bat for us. We'll see that in verses 18 through 21. Okay, so with that the roadmap, let's work through Exodus 20 together quickly. Starting in verse 1, we'll read it out of the NIV. And God spoke all of these words. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's all God's work, and it's all God's work through grace. That grace is meant to to woo us into relationship, to compel us to love God. Here's what that love should look like. You shall love no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth, beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor any animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We're saved by grace to love God. And we learn to love God by learning to honor our parents. Verse 12, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. We learn to honor our parents. And if we do this, if we honor our parents and learn to love God, then we will learn to love our neighbor as ourselves by not doing these things. Verse 13, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants, his Ox or donkey, insert car, right? Not an ox or donkey unless you're into oxes and donkeys. Then don't covet those of your neighbor or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and spoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance. could stand before a God like this? They said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and will keep you from sinning. And the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. All right, that's our text for this morning. We're going to walk back through those five points that I laid out through you slowly. And I want you to know that we don't have time to go through every commandment this morning. So we're going to do it in broad brushstrokes, focusing on the morals of the story. But if you're interested, man, there is a treasure trove of depth In each and every one of these commandments. We did a series on the Ten Commandments a couple summers back. That's online. There's a lot of great Bible teachers out there that I would encourage you. If you've never done in-depth study of the Ten Commandments, you should later. But we're not going to do that today. Today we're going to paint in broad brush strokes. And I want you to remember, as we're dealing with the Mosaic Covenant, the root of this covenant, point one. The root of this covenant and the morals of this story is, always has been, always will be rooted in in grace. Look at those two verses. Verse 1 and 2. God speaks. He initiates. He is the one that moves towards us. He is the one who does the saving. For the Israelites, he freed them from the Egyptians. If you're in Jesus, he has freed you from slavery to sin. We are no longer slaves. We have been set free by the power of the gospel on display in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. He saves me, and if you're in Jesus, He has saved you. God is the one who does the saving. And I want to think with you for a minute, just a little bit, about the people of Israel. I know know I've told you the right answer, but as you read through the story, some of us might maybe get the wrong idea. Why is it that God saves the people of Israel? They did a lot of grumbling, they cried out to, to God. Crying out to God's not necessarily bad, but they did a lot of grumbling, a, a lot of complaining against the Lord. Is that why God would save anyone? Because they grumble? God, if you would just do this or that, or the other thing, right? The Israelites, they grumbled about so much, church. They grumbled, grumbled about, about God being silent. Where are you? You made this promise and where have you been? Which, again, is like kind of understandable, but it, it depends on your heart. If you're just kind of shaking your fists and being like, oh, you're the worst God, but grumble, grumble, right? They grumbled about being slaves. They couldn't celebrate the goodness of God even against some tough circumstances. They grumbled about God leading them out of Egypt. He led them out by all these miraculous signs, and they get to the edge of the, the, the Red Sea, and there's a, an army chasing them, and what do they do? Oh, surely God will save us because He just did all these amazing things like, hey, Moses, what's the plan, right? Let's go. No, grumble, grumble. Why'd you lead us out of here? What are we going to do? You're the worst. Take us back to slavery. Grumble, grumble, right? Their story is a bunch of grumbling. Grumbling about the food God gives them, the drinks God gives them. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Here's what I want you to know. God does not save anyone because of their grumbling. In fact, if you read through Exodus, the entire story, one of the main, main themes Probably the main theme is that God saves to get glory. A secondary theme is that God hates grumbling. He hates it. Grumbling gets a lot of people killed in Exodus. A lot. Before we move on, I want to invite you, along with myself, to check your heart. Check your heart, bro. How's your grumbling? How's your grumbling? Church, we are meant to be a royal priesthood that shines forth the joy of Jesus. We are not meant to be a bunch of grumpy grumblers that leak out darkness. Grumbling is a cough of a sick heart. So, loved ones, how's your heart? Is it quick to give grace and gratitude Or does it strangle praise with a low growl of grumble whispered under your breath? Towards your church, towards your leaders, towards your school system, towards your political system, your political leaders, your spouse, your family? Check your heart, friends. Check your heart. Did God save Israel because of their grumbling? as Pete the Cat would say, goodness, no, right? Any Pete the Cat fans? Nope, just me. All right, I've got toddlers, right? Goodness, no. we didn't save them because of their grumbling. God's got grace for our grumbles, but salvation does not come to us because of our grumbles. It may come to us in spite of them, but when it comes to us, it always comes to us by grace, alone, through faith in Jesus Christ. Grace is the root of our salvation, not our works or efforts, certainly not our grumbling. Do not miss this, friends. Grace is the root which produces the fruit of good works. God has good works for us to do, good moral living. He wants us to be holy, but that is fruit that God produces in us. It is not the root or foundation of our salvation. Grace always comes first. If you miss this, you will miss the gospel, and thereby you will miss salvation. Why? Well, because we're going to see when by the time we get to point five, as the morals of the story end, it reveals to us two things. One, that God cares how we live. He expects us to be holy. But two, none of us can meet those expectations. So, we need a gracious mediator to stand in our place. The morals of the story are rooted in grace verses one and two understanding this then the grace of god that should compel us to love him right if we understand if we get grace that should compel us to be like holy cow god you wow you're amazing who else would save a motley grumbling crew like me like us who else would move towards us in this ridiculous grace none but the father of heaven He's so incredibly gracious that graciousness is meant to woo us into a love relationship. And that is what verses 3 through 11 are all about. The most important moral or rule that God gives to us concerns our vertical relationship with himself. The rule or moral is this. Love God. Love God most. If you read through this section, there are rules in here about worshiping God alone. We can summarize them by basically saying, here's what God says Put God at the center of your life. Put Him at the center of your life. So everything you think, do, say, calendar, checkbook, time, talent, treasure, all of it revolves around Him. What He says. Make your life as a person, as a parent, As an employee, an employer, a citizen, a family member, make your life revolve around God and His desires. The word worship is used in this section which helps us understand what love for God looks like. Worship means to ascribe worth, to give incredible, immense worth to someone or something, In the next section, in verse 12, we're going to learn about a word called honor. Honor your parents. That word helps us understand what it means to worship. It's instructive as well. To honor someone means to give special weight. To give special weight to their authority in your life. Essentially, what God is saying to the people he saves, he says, let my grace change you so that you love me in such a way that gives worth or weight, honor, worship to me above everything else. Love me most. Put me at the center of your life. Morals one and two of the story, receive God's grace and love Him alone for it. Moral three, we see God shifting from the vertical relationship to the horizontal relationship. It's the linchpin, again, between the vertical and the horizontal. We discover that your relationship with God, my relationship with God, it actually, it sort of, it turns, it rises and falls on the family unit. On the family unit. Church, do you know what the penalty is that existed in the morals of the story? They get fleshed out later in detail in Exodus and then also in Deuteronomy. Do you know what, do you know what God says? Hey, if you come against a child who, who can't do, verse 12, they don't honor their parents. They don't obey them. They dishonor them. If, if this persists, what, how are you supposed to deal with this child? God says stone them. Stone them. Throw rocks at them until they die. That seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? But I want you to think about this with me for a second. How will any child learn to live under God's authority and love God if they can't learn to live under their parents' authority and love them and honor them in the way that they live? Answer, they can't. They won't. Barring a gracious and miraculous intervention by the Lord, which He can do, but it's a big deal. Church, I believe that We are currently, as a culture, reaping what parents of the past generation have sown into their children. They've instructed their intellect, but not disciplined their emotions. And now, we are living with a generation of people who despise all authority from government to God. We have a generation of selfish people who could really care less they could care less about how they treat their neighbor because they've been raised to believe that they are at the center of the universe. That their glory is the glory that matters most. Everybody gets a ribbon. And all of that matters more than the glory of our God who resides in heaven. Parents, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children, children, honor your parents, that it may go well with you in the land. And it may go well for the rest of us in the land that we share together. And if you do, church, if you learn to love God and honor your parents, you will love your neighbor well by not doing the things that the Lord lists for us in verses 17 through 13. You won't murder or Be murderous in your thoughts towards others. You won't be so angry that you curse people under your breath. You won't murder in action or in attitude and thought. You won't cheat on your spouse physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. You won't steal what's not yours, which could include credit, From someone else that you're taking it from you won't lie you tell the truth you won't be discontent or greedy to gain what others have i just want to pause here for a minute unless you let you ask a question let me ask a question what if we lived in a world where people actually followed these morals Right? People want to take the Ten Commandments out of the government and all of this stuff. And I'm like, why? Like, Let's ask the question, what if we lived in a world where people actually did this stuff? Let's just take one as an example. I remember when I was in college, I went to a Christian college. We had awesome community. I lived in a dorm with 80 guys. It was raucous in a good Christian, fun-loving way. We pranked each other. Doors were open all the time. All the dorm rooms, people were in and out. All the time. It was amazing. Amazing community until... A gentleman who apparently didn't love Jesus or didn't think that the morals of God mattered decided that he liked a lot of the stuff that existed in all of these unlocked and open doors and he could make a killing if he stole it and sold it on eBay. And he did. And it took a week for every single one of those doors to be closed and he didn't just steal our stuff, he stole our community. I still get so ticked off when I think about this. He could have cared less. He got disciplined and eventually expelled and still it took like Probably, I don't know, three or four months to like get people back into an open community. He didn't just steal stuff. He stole community and it ticked me off, as you can see. If you've been stolen from, you, you know this feeling. You know what it feels like, right? Imagine if we lived in a world where people just practiced this one of God's morals. They didn't steal. Just one. It would be so much of a better place to live. To anyone who says God's morals of the story are meant to steal joy, I just simply ask, well, imagine a world where people actually did this. Can you even imagine? This is what heaven's going to be like, friends. To that, I say, come, Lord Jesus. Let's go. Let's get this evil out of here. Let's live according to the morals of the story. Now, you can probably imagine where I'm going. Ain't nobody live like this, do we? I know we could point the finger out at those people, right? They stink, right? Let's bring it in here. One finger at them, three fingers back. You don't live like this either. And neither do I, friend. We could go through every single one of these Ten Commandments line by line, and I would bet you a million dollars, for real. I bet you a million dollars that each and every one of us, including me, breaks every single one of these at least once a week. At least once a week, if not once a day. If these are the standards of God, the question you and I are left asking, who can stand before this God? And that's precisely the question that Israel poses after they see God's glory from the mountain and they hear the thunderous pronouncement of the morals, the standards of the story that he sets before them. These morals are good and beautiful. The problem is, hey, nobody live up according to them, right? We can't live up according to them. So what are we going to do? What, what do we need? We need precisely what the people of Israel ask for. We need a mediator. Someone to stand in our place and make a case for us before God on why he should continue to be gracious with such a grumpy group of disobedient rule followers. For the people of Israel, God appointed Moses to be their mediator. For us, in the New Testament, we learned that Jesus is the new and better Moses. Jesus lives up to God's morals for us and he pleads our case before the Father as well. His atonement, the blood that he sheds on our behalf, it covers us. It speaks a better word over us than what our lives would speak to the Father. He goes to bat for us. He stands in the gap in our defense so that we might not stand at a distance, right? If you read in here, we find that the people are terrified. The fear of God overwhelms them. They cry out for a mediator. And then they're left at a distance from the mountain. And only Moses is permitted to go up into the darkness. But the gospel says that that's no longer the case. If you're in Jesus, you no longer have to fear God, but you can have confidence to approach the throne of grace, not with fear, but with confidence. Because he's our mediator. He is the new and better Moses for us. There you have it, friends. And now you know the rest of the story. I can't think of any better way to conclude this morning than for us to participate in one of the signs of the promise. The reality that Christ went to the cross, that he shed his blood to cover over our offense, and that God raised him to new life so that we could have the promise of new life as well. He frees us from sin and invites us into relationship, a confident relationship, so that we can know that he's always glad to see us even if we fail to uphold some of the morals of the story. That is what communion, the picture that we're given in communion. I want to invite you to practice it with us now. We practice open communion here at Crossroads. What that means is that if you love and worship God alone, if you have a relationship, you understand that I've received grace, it's by faith alone in Jesus that I've been saved. You're invited to come. And to worship the Lord by taking of the bread, which represents Christ's broken body, and the the juice, which represents Christ's shed blood for you. No one's obligated to participate. And honestly, I'd invite all of us to check our hearts for a moment before we do. The Bible actually encourages us not to participate if we have unforgiveness or bitterness or grumbling in our hearts towards another person, brother or sister in Christ. Rather than celebrate communion, we're actually encouraged to go and be reconciled, to forgive, to be reconciled to that person, whoever you have an offense against. So if you were in that spot, say, hey, maybe just pause this week on communion. Circle back next time after you've resolved the the sin issue in your heart. With all that said, I'll pray for us. The band will come up. They're going to Play silent, or play a little bit in the background. As uh, Wes said, you come from left to right at whatever table's closest to you. When they're all done, we'll stand and sing a final song and then I'll be back up to give some some instructions about the food and the meal following our, our time together. So let me pray for us and then we can participate in communion together. Father, thank you. Thank you for such a rich passage of scripture. Thank you for reminding our hearts that we we can't possibly live up to your standard. And that's why you're the one who does and did make the fir- first move towards us in grace. You move towards us in grace to establish a covenantal relationship with us. I pray, Father, that we would never get those things in the wrong order. Keep us from trying to follow up the rules of the covenant without first being grafted into the covenant by your grace and the shed blood of Jesus. I pray that the, the cross and the resurrection would so soften our hearts that if we've got grumbling in there, and Lord knows I've got a lot of it in my garbage heart sometimes. I pray, Father, that you would root it out with just the, the beauty of the gospel, the love of the gospel. I pray that you would renew your face in our mind's I. That when we think about you, that we would not see a God that's ready to bring the gavel down or the hammer down, but we would see you as you are in Jesus. A God who loves us, a God who's glad to be with us. Would that grace and compassion soften our hearts to live with gratitude? To live for you alone, to worship you alone by putting you at the center of our hearts, Lord. Help us practice this in our family relationships. Help us work this out in our horizontal relationships with our neighbors. Help us be priests, chief worshiping officers who show and shine and share the beautiful grace that you've given to us in the gospel. As we turn our attentions now to receive communion, I pray that you would take the elements and just make them Help, help this process, Lord, move all of the things that we've discussed from our head down into our heart so that we bear the fruit of your salvation in our lives. We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name for your glory. Amen.